Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of The Lowdown. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Alex Phillips, former Head of Governance and Compliance at UEFA, where he spent nearly 13 years now serving as an advisor to FIFA. Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Connor. It's great Alex, to be here. Great to be here too with yourself and it's been a long time coming. Obviously, Alex, we're here to speak all things about the football, financial, business, administration side of things. Well, getting back to your youth, that's where we start with every every guest on every episode. Can you bring us through your earliest football memory? Well, I was actually born in Paris. My parents are English, but they moved back to England, to London, when I was a, like a toddler, uh, when I was a baby. And uh, they happened to buy a house next to a football stadium. So that's <clears throat> my first football memories were hearing 50,000 men screaming when a goal went in uh, next to my house and we could uh, we could see the actually see half of the pitch from the roof of our house that's how close we were and it was uh, yeah as a little kid I thought that it was a spaceship taking off when the goal was scored the sound was so intense uh, so such an incredible roar uh, it was just sort of mind-blowing for for a youngster so I grew up going to the going to the grounds playing football like everybody else did in the park <clears throat> every weekend and in the playgrounds on school days uh, and then I went to my first match when I was seven um 20 35 years no more than that 45 years ago uh, uh at Highbury that's my team at Arsenal the old Arsenal stadium um, and then I remember big clubs coming, Juventus, Spartak Moscow, all sorts of exotic teams used to come uh, and for UEFA Cup, Cup Winners' Cup matches, floodlit, Tuesday, Wednesday nights, uh, huge games, seeing these great footballers from all over, all over Europe and all over the world. So th- those are my first memories, uh, just the sheer excitement of, of, uh, of live football, top professional football. Heroes like uh, Liam Brady uh, and many others uh, at a very young age. So that's that's kind of how I got into football, really. And did you have much of a career playing the game or perhaps even dabbling in the coaching side of things? Not really. I played once for my borough, uh, Islington Camden, but I wasn't really good enough to make it as a as a <clears throat> professional uh, nowhere near good enough, actually. Um, a team captain went on to have a decent career, a school team captain, as uh, he won the Youth Cup with FA Youth Cup with Arsenal, uh, Al James Hannigan. But uh, I was nowhere near as good as him, and he was obviously going to go and make a make it as a professional, as the rest of us were not quite quite up to it. Um, so coaching, I coach. I was coaching my daughter yesterday. She's twelve and her team in uh, in Switzerland. So I do some kids coaching. Uh, they played in a, five, in a tournament, five matches, <clears throat> 20 minutes per match, quite intense for 12-year-old girls. Uh, but it was it was great fun in Switzerland. You, you get to go and play in some amazing scenery and settings. Uh, but that's the limits of my coaching career. I'd say I had an experience when Arsenal got knocked out of the Champions League uh, by Chelsea. Uh, and I remember 
thinking, oh, that was our year, you know, that was the year of the Invincibles, and if we're not going to win it now, we're never going to win it. But the next the next day I was on the pitch with these seven, eight-year-old kids, uh, and then I realised, you know, this is what football is really about. It, it sounds slightly uh, cliched, but actually that, that was it. The kids were just running around, around having great fun, and you can maybe do something to help them uh, nurture their interests and love for the game and love for the ball. And... Uh, Help them enjoy themselves themselves more, and you learn a lot about yourself coaching. I think uh, it teaches you a lot. It's hard. I find it personally. I find it quite hard, difficult. Even coaching young, young kids, uh, it's not easy uh, to get the best out of them. You know, to do a good job of it, it's easy to just turn up with a load of cones and uh, get people to to do drills. But to do it well is quite difficult. But no, I moved on to the administrative side, so less on the playing side. But I. I've kept an interest in the playing and coaching and technical side because I think one of the biggest problems in in British football, especially, is a is a huge gap between the ownership and management and the playing and coaching side, where uh, which a gap which is not quite so big in, in many other countries where there, the gap's closed and there's they're not seen as completely separate functions. And it was actually the same within within UEFA to some degree, uh, where you know, people look at the technical side and they think, oh, that's some sort of magical stuff that only former players understand and no one else can understand it. But in practice, there is a lot of crossover between uh, the technical and the administrative sides and uh, finding the right balance <clears throat> uh, is an important and difficult thing. Um, but we can come back to that later on. Yeah, that's a very noteworthy distinction and it's something which I wanted to bring up. I mean, you're speaking about Arsenal-Chelsea there in the Champions League quarterfinal in 2004, and then the next day, you're on that ferry pitch again coaching kids. I mean, one venue, one location, but two distinct and parallel universes. And obviously the big, I suppose, key differentiator is the financial side of things. What was it that kind of appealed um, about getting into football finance? Well, I was working in in financial information, but just general financial information in the city. I went and set up offices uh, for the, for a company in Milan, uh, Paris, Madrid. So small businesses basically got those businesses up and running. Uh, but I just, because I was passionate about football, I thought, well, if I'm going to have to work in an office for the rest of my life, my life I'd rather it would be about something I'm interested in. And therefore, I, uh, I saw an MBA advertised. It's the one at Liverpool, the Football Industries MBA. Uh, it was the first edition of that, 97. I applied to do that. And that was my way in, really, uh, that and having foreign languages. So at the end of that, Deloitte's were looking for somebody who could understand the accounts of big clubs around Europe, because in the mid-90s, football was becoming more international. And so... People were, were, were becoming more interested in Italian, Spanish, uh, French, German clubs in the UK. And so uh, that was my, my way in, really, as a way uh, of having a specific niche, because people in the UK don't really study so much foreign languages. <clears throat> so that was that was kind of my way in. Uh, and finance was uh, I'm not I'm not an accountant, <clears throat> but I, I kind of learned on the job, if you like. Uh, and you don't need to be a genius to, to read a profit and loss account or a set of financial statements uh, of uh, football clubs. And 
So that was my way in uh, to football, to football finance, um, football management consulting, which I did for four years at Deloitte's. And pertinently, you bring up Deloitte. You're obviously part of the team there, which created the Deloitte Rich List, which is now interwoven into the football fabric. It's become a part of football's pop culture, so to speak, even. I mean, what was the purpose of that Rich List upon its inception, Alex? Well, the guy who, I think the guy who had the original idea was a quite a talented sports journalist called Matt Tench, who also created the Observer Sport monthly magazine and he i think he had the idea he just looked at the forbes rich list and said well why don't we do this for football uh people will be in people are just interested obsessed at times with money in sport in football so why don't we do that so he came to deloitte's and said look there they can sort of give it some legitimacy they're the ex the football finance experts so let's ask them and we do it as a joint venture that's what we did so with 442 in the beginning it was a joint uh, initiative to basically list clubs by their finances. We picked revenues simply because it was the easiest figure to get, but revenues is not obviously necessarily the best uh, metric to define rich, but nevertheless, it was a marketing exercise more than anything. It wasn't meant to be a scientific uh, exercise for people to base their investment decisions on. It was more of a symbolic marketing exercise that gave a lot of uh, publicity to, to Deloitte's. Uh, and then uh, this was simply an addition because Deloitte's were already doing the annual review of football finance, which is a much more scientific and detailed study of all the finances of uh, English football clubs. So this was more of an add-on uh, to that at the time. Also more of an international look because obviously uh, at that time, there was a Super League in 97, 98, Super League idea, media partners, which failed, but nevertheless brought into focus. There were a lot of changes to the Champions League around those years, uh, a lot of conflict between the clubs and the governing bodies. And so uh, this, this was very kind of interesting to a lot of people at that time to, to compare those biggest clubs uh, and see uh, who had what kind of money and where the money was coming from. And all of this preceded a move to UEFA in 2002, Alex, where you were going to be at the forefront of all these discussions and conversations. I mean, how similar or different was the European football landscape back then compared when it is now? Because even you're speaking about the idea of a European Super League back in 97, 98. Yeah, I, it's a good question. That's an interesting question. Uh, maybe because I have sort of lived and grown up with it over that period, I don't see that much difference. I mean, most of the same clubs now are the same clubs that were agitating for a Super League then. There's a couple of differences uh, here and there, but, and it's so in that respect, there's not really that much that's changed. And in the sense, that was an era when there were uh, clubs attacking UEFA and FIFA in court trying to, uh, some of them trying to break away, conflict. Um, then there was a period of truce and peace and stability, which is when the ECA was created around 2008 for about a decade uh, and or, or a bit more. But then we've come full circle and now we're back to conflict again uh, and a Super League. So in that sense, looking at it 
in the long term, I don't think that much has changed. Obviously, the absolute amounts of money have changed. You know, the absolute amounts are way bigger than they were back then. But and probably the relative amounts are also different as well, in the sense that the biggest clubs have got further away from everybody else uh, in relative terms as well as absolute terms. But fundamentally, the same principles are still there. I think they're just becoming slightly more exaggerated as time goes on. I mean, the driver for all of this, there's, there are sort of underlying reasons. One of the underlying reasons is, is club ownership. So if you allow anybody to take over a football club, which is what has, has been the case in England over the years, uh, legally, pretty much anyone has been able to take over a club if they convince a existing owner to sell to them and they've got the money to pay for it you end up with completely random owners some good ones and a lot of bad ones uh, and therefore you kind of lose control over the destiny of your own competition because it's you know at the moment it's a few american uh, owners a couple of gulf states and some others uh maybe in 10 20 years time there'll be some others but unless you have any kind of control and regulation over the uh, the ownership structure of the clubs, then you're really completely uh, put at the mercy of those, whichever constellation of owners happens to be around at any one particular point in time. So I've always been a big proponent of fan ownership and fan involvement in clubs, professional clubs. And um, we created Supporters Direct Europe, uh, 2007, around then, 2000. Uh, to, to try to promote fan ownership in clubs to, um, this was expanded across Europe. So it's, it acts as a central point to gather information. People can exchange uh, ideas and knowledge and basically try and get fans more involved in, in running clubs. It's not a panacea. Sometimes you have fan groups who cause problems. They might be associated with uh, negative aspects of society, but in many other cases, fans bring a perspective that uh, distant owners or absent owners won't have because they actually love the club, you know. So by definition, they're going to be more interested in the long-term health of the club than any other owner who's come in for some reason that may be financial, maybe something else. We don't know. Often, it's very unclear why people own buy and uh, own football clubs, and sometimes they disappear from one day to the next. So, uh, so some of the underlying reasons. Are, are still there and exactly the same, like club ownership. Uh, but the others as well, like the media, the evolution in the media uh, market, again, I would say, surprisingly, is fairly similar today to what it was back then. People tend to say and think that there's been some huge revolution with technology. There has, but fundamentally, the biggest income for the top clubs is still media rights and that was the same back then as it is now uh, and it's not just in europe i mean the lead let's say the the sports that set the benchmark for the rest of the world are the us major leagues and they've just signed a 10-year deals with network tv for over 100 billion dollars so that's traditional linear ad funded tv so, I mean, this is like the old technology, basically. So that's going to go 10 years into the future with the most advanced sports leagues in the world. Uh, I think 
uh, we're, we're still in the same model that we were in back then when uh, media rights were the main sources of income together with sponsorship and together with ticketing in certain countries like the UK and Germany. Um, but we haven't fundamentally changed that uh, financial paradigm uh, since that, that period, all, all those many years ago, 25 years ago. And obviously at the time we were a part of many projects which were precautionary really in their essence in terms of protecting, you know, standing up for the clubs and their interests. One of the huge ones at the time being the advent of the European Clubs Association in 2008. I mean, during that specific time frame, Alex, I mean, what were the hopes and aspirations of forming that alliance? Well, that was just around the time that Michel Platini got elected as UEFA president for the first time. And uh, the clubs were suing UEFA and FIFA, trying to get more money out of them, uh, trying to get more say, more power over the club competitions. And the you, so you basically had two different wings. You had a, a very in-house uh, committee type of uh, organisation where you had the European Club Forum, which was like a UEFA committee, but it had no decision-making power. Then you have many of the same clubs in an external organisation, G14, which was completely uh, unrecognised and, um, let's say, aggressive in its approach to, um, to UEFA and FIFA and, and suing UEFA and FIFA. So the whole point of the European Club Association was to bring those two extremes together into one, let's say, middle ground. That, and that's what was achieved. So the European Club Forum was abolished and the G14 was abolished. And together they found a body that was external, but was recognised. So it was a legitimate voice of all of the clubs. And the other thing is, it did bring in all of the clubs. So on the, yes, it was dominated by the biggest clubs, but there was a voice for the smaller clubs. There was, uh, I think from memory, a Maltese club on the board of the first uh, European Club Association board. And um, that wasn't the case in G14, which by its very nature was a self-selecting group of clubs who had decided for their own reasons that they were the biggest clubs and they wanted to organise their own competition. So this was based on coefficient ranking. Membership was based on coefficient ranking. So there's a sporting logic to it. So it had much more legitimacy. Um, and UEFA was also evolving in the sense that it finally realised it had to, to listen to the clubs more. And regardless of what you might think of the clubs, you know, they are the ones that are employing the players. They're the ones that are organising the matches. They're the ones that are driving football um, on a weekly basis together with their leagues uh, and the players themselves and the fans that pay for the tickets. <clears throat> so you can't just carry on dictating to them and uh, telling them what they must do. You have to listen to them. And that the ECA was really a vehicle for, for UEFA and the clubs to communicate in a much more efficient way and a much better way. Of course, these things are often based on personalities as well. So the fact that Karl-Heinz Rummenigge and Michel Platini, the two respective, or the respective uh, chairman and president of ECA and UEFA were former colleagues, they played together, they had a good bond. I mean, that always helps when you have that kind of chemistry uh, that can, can push forward 
change, positive change and reform. So that was a that was the beginning of a positive period, I would say, stable period for relations between um, governing bodies and the clubs. And following on, Alex, from our initial conversation about the European Club Association, bringing that forward to the current day, I mean, there's no shortage of current affairs to discuss. There's even been an acknowledgement from UEFA recently that the financial system is in need of some upheaval, exasperated by COVID and the recent European Super League. And we've seen recently the introduction of financial sustainability and club licensing regulations which shall replace financial fair play, covering a series of solvency, stability, and cost control measures. Can you bring us up to speed on some of these changes? Well, I'm not going to go into the detail because I don't know the details. Uh, I haven't seen the details yet. Um, I think in the long term, we can look at the financial fair play rules as a positive evolution because... Uh, well, I mean, to put them in their correct context, we have to say club licensing was the first step forwards because that provided the basis for financial fair play. Um, that was introduced in 2004 on the European level, but it had already been in existence in several countries, Germany, France, uh, Netherlands, Austria, Switzerland, for a few years on national level before that. And that set the framework where you have basic financial and other rules to uh, ensure clubs are uh, meeting minimum standards and are improving and raising the level of uh, off-field quality uh, in European football, not just the on-field quality. So I think the current evolution, it's becoming more and more difficult for regulators like UEFA to come up with regulations that are going to meet the different objectives. So they seem to have abandoned any idea of... Um, regulating competitive balance through financial rules. Um, and I think that's probably a, uh, it's an objective that is impossible to meet through financial regulation, certainly financial regulation alone. Uh, why? Because you have some owners who want to make as much money as possible, like the Americans, for example, and you have others who are almost doing the opposite, spending way beyond what the club is generating in order to achieve on-field success. So it's virtually impossible to come up with a regulation that's going to keep both of those types of owners happy. There's also there's a whole load of other owners with different uh, objectives or varying objectives. So um, for me, I would focus more on the sporting side to regulate European football. In other words, I would have a cap on the number of professional contracts each club can have. So you do not have a, a lone army of 25, 30 extremely talented teenage uh, young players who belong to one club but can never play for that club because they're constantly being farmed out on loan uh, to other clubs. But ultimately, if they're going to make it, the two or three that are going to make it, they get kept by the big rich club and the rest get move, get get. Uh, left to go back to clubs where they could have stayed in the first place. Uh, so I think this is a sign of the concentration of wealth. And this is something where it's much easier to regulate and police than financial rules, which are notoriously difficult to police. I mean, if you look at salary cap regulation or financial um, 
regulation of sports teams anywhere in the world. Uh, it's extremely hard to regulate even in one country with one legal system, one set of accounting standards, um, one language, one culture, like in Australia or in the US where uh, salary caps have existed, there there are continuous problems. So imagine what it's like to, trying to do it across 55 different football associations across the whole of Europe where everyone's got a different legal system, different financial situation, uh, tax situation and so on. So that is an extremely difficult objective to begin with, um, trying to bring in sophisticated regulation, financial regulation, such as limiting the percentage of turnover that can be spent on wages, which is uh, seems to be the current idea. Before it was a break-even rule, which is a similar concept. I mean, this is, this is kind of a repackaged version of, the, of a similar concept where you can't spend more than you earn <clears throat> with certain exceptions. So before it was up to 45 million euros over a certain period of time, and now it's going to increase to to uh, 60 million uh, from reading in the media and so on. So I think this, we're not going to see any major change whatsoever, certainly not for competitive balance. It may have some positive effects on the financial stability of clubs. Um, but I don't think there's going to be any revolutionary change to these uh, rules. And in any case, rules only work if they're applied properly, whatever the rules are. Um, and there's been a lot of problems with UEFA applying its own rules in recent years, in particular big cases where uh, UEFA has failed to implement for FFP rules uh, with free spending clubs, um, which has kind of undermined the whole belief and credibility in the system. Uh, so until uh, structures and people are in place that give reassurance that rules are going to be implemented and policed properly, I think we're just going to be in a in the same situation as before, but with probably a different name on the on the regulations. You can call them FFP or you can call them financial sustainability, but in the big picture, fundamentally, we're going to have the same issues as we've been having in recent years. That's my view anyway. And this is all coming from UEFA, where there's an acknowledgement from many people in the industry that they cannot be both the regulator and the competition organiser. However, what about the clubs, if we play the, devil ad, the devil's advocate here? Um, looking at some recent infographics from the Swiss Ramble, who does some great stuff on Twitter. Mm -hmm. As we see in the last 12 months, the worsening financial state of each of these 12 European Super League clubs, just to speak of, pre-tax losses over £2.2 billion over the past two years. I mean, are these the sorts of entities which we should be placing our trust for the future of the game? Uh, I think you have to, well, first of all, Swiss Ramble yeah, is the guru on these issues uh, these days and uh, really very objective and balanced uh, in, in his analysis. Um, I think clubs will always be self-interested, um, but that's not a criticism. You know, that's their role in the, in the ecosystem. They're, they're, they're not regulators, they are clubs. They want to win, and that's fine. That's good. It's, and the competition between them drives football forward. Uh, but they need to be protected from themselves, uh, which is why in US sports they get together and they find one guy, a commissioner, who they all trust, or most of them trust, and empower them with a lot of, with a lot of power to regulate uh, their particular competition, 
um, properly. European sport is a bit different. It's a bit more complicated because you've got national team football. You've also got the whole international versus domestic level, which you don't have in US sports. So it's much more complex uh, to, to regulate. Uh, I do think that the, the time has come. I mean, in fact, it came a long time ago where the regulation should be separated from other aspects of what the governing bodies are doing. It's not complicated. It doesn't need to be complicated. I mean, you. the basic point is um, UEFA has an interest not to sanction certain big clubs because those big clubs are the ones that make its big club competitions popular. So there's a, you know, there's a conflict of interest. Uh, so to separate to make to remove that conflict of interest you simply do what countries do which is they set up a judiciary which is separate from the parliament which is separate from the executive so that the judges can act in uh, independence and they're not affected by political interests and so on obviously no system's perfect everywhere there's some political element everywhere but it's better than the alternative which is basically everything being decided by one guy uh, so I do think the time has come for that separation, probably some other separation as well, like the development money that is generated by the euro that should go into a separate foundation or a separate fund with its own management. So it won't be used in a political way. Uh, it can be used in a development way, which is the purpose or should be the purpose of those funds. Um, plus some other uh, changes that should be made because we basically have, uh, in UEFA, you've basically got an organisation that has evolved from uh, 20 people in an office in Bern in the early 90s, where UEFA used to be, uh, to 1,000 people uh, in, in NEON doing all sorts of different things that they never used to do with several billion euros a year coming in and all sorts of uh, powers that didn't used to exist in the old days, yet it still retained the same, it has the same organisational structure as all those years ago. And I think the time's come to evolve that and to, to uh, separate certainly the regulatory arm <clears throat> from everything else, uh, but also probably the development arm, as I mentioned. And I would personally, certainly for national team football, bring marketing together with development to ensure that um, the big broadcasters and sponsors are doing the most that they can to help develop football around Europe uh, and around the world where you know UEFA competitions are watched rather than simply generating the maximum amount of revenue uh, because we need to think about the future of the game you know players are people going to be playing football in 50 years time um, <clears throat> Uh, or are they going to, you know, what are the trends, what are going on outside of football? So we need the big part, the big commercial partners to help us, uh, help the federations drive the, the future health of football. And that involves working with them, not just to try and get as much money out of them, but to use their skills and data and relationships uh, to develop football. I'll give you an example. You know, Facebook let's say there's 2 billion Facebook accounts around the world. So does it make sense for UEFA or any other sports body to try and go and get money from Facebook in terms of selling them rights or selling them sponsorship? Or would it be better to say to them, look, can you help us develop football? You're in contact with 2 billion people around the world. 
Facebook help. I mean, they have Facebook data has shaped elections, referendums. It's helping determine uh, who becomes prime minister in certain countries. So if it can do that, well, why don't we uh, try and use that data to get kids playing football, to get parents coaching football, uh, to get people to volunteer, to get people to respect referees more, to do all sorts of things that that we should be doing to, to improve our sport. And it's not just Facebook, it's all the big tech companies and it's all it's the media companies and it's all of the, the partners uh, that, that UEFA and the other big sports bodies have where we, we, I think we need to move to a more sophisticated marketing approach where it looks, looks at it more from a developmental point of view rather than a cash point of view. Obviously, I say that's more suited to national team football than club football because clubs would always want the cash option, uh, which is not necessarily the, the best way to go. I mean, I'd say the NBA teams, they're happy that uh, the NBA cross-promotes the women's NBA. That doesn't make money. Why do they do it? They do it because it's an investment in the future. They know that in the future, women's NBA probably will make money. It might take a few years. Uh, in fact, I think it's making money now, but... Uh, you know, it might take a few years to develop, but they are they they had a vision, let's say, to to cross promote. I think football is coming around very slowly to that area, and women's football developing uh, quickly, but not as quickly as it could be uh, growing if more focus was put on that kind of cross promotion and that kind of use of marketing uh, rights for promotion rather than just for cash. It's interesting. It's really interesting because you look at the protagonists involved and it seems to me as if no deal is better than some deal. They're very unwilling to compromise. And quite clearly, too, this stems from probably feelings of contempt. There has to be some sort of better coordination between some of the leagues. Um, obviously, yourself and myself, two, fan, two avid fans of Premier League clubs, we see it too, the resentment from other leagues towards the Premier League over a whole host of things probably exasperated by the media rights, the international TV deals, and the ensuing input, Alex, which that has over squad values, meaning the top 11 world's most valuable clubs, six of those come from the Premier League. We're looking at, or even if we're going to consider squad values, the Premier League is now over £8 billion, which is nearly twice as much as Syria and La Liga. Yeah, but... Over the last, it's true, financially, Premier League is, is much bigger than the other leagues. But what do they do with the money? That's the question. Uh, how can it be that the Premier League is almost twice the financial size of La Liga, yet over the last 10, 15 years, La Liga teams have won more Champions Leagues and more Europa Leagues than Premier League clubs? On half the budget and it's not just Real Madrid and Barcelona you know we're seeing Villarreal from a town of 40,000 people in the semi-finals of the uh of the Champions League and winning the Europa League it's Atletico it's it's other teams Sevilla have done a great job winning many Europa Leagues over the years why haven't Premier League clubs been winning those Europa Leagues why have Sevilla been winning them on much much lower budgets so uh, I think it's all very well having money, but you need to spend the money wisely. Uh, and sometimes too much money is a curse and it encourages uh, wastefulness, which doesn't exist in the smaller and medium-sized countries and leagues where they can't afford to waste money. So they really have to do 
they, which is an incentive for them to do a better job on recruitment and on uh, talent development. Uh, look at Portugal, you know, look at the, what the Portuguese clubs have done over the years. Uh, this is where they're receiving way less money compared to those big, big TV market countries like England, Spain, Germany, etc. Yet they've done a great job of, of developing and recruiting players. Um, so money is, is an important factor, but it's not everything. Uh, there is a concentration of wealth. But, uh, and it is getting bigger. And that's why I think that should be addressed through football rules, like uh, cap on the number of professional contracts per club could be 25, for example, plus a maximum number of three players that you could loan out. Uh, that would mean that a lot of the best young talent in, around Europe would stay in the Belgian league, the Portuguese league, Swedish league, until, like Ibrahimovic, they're 17, 18, 19, and they're ready to move on. And they're not moving when they're 15 or 16 to a, to a big club in a, in a faraway country. They're allowed to evolve in their hometown with their family and friends, probably going to study till at least they're 18. Uh, and then they can move when they're a bit more mature and a bit more grown up, and they've had experience playing on a transitional level, like Swedish league, Belgian league, uh, et cetera. Whereas we've seen a trend in recent years for players to leave younger and younger. It's not just within Europe, it's also within countries. So, you know, going from to big clubs within Spain or England, et cetera. And it's also within, across continents, moving from South America to Europe, in particular Africa to Europe, uh, although slowed, I think, that trend with, with regards to South America. But um, I think that if that could be stopped, that would automatically strengthen all the other leagues uh, because you'd have talent that's not moving so young to uh, the, the, that group of 11 clubs or whether it's 10, 15, 11, you know, there's a small group of clubs that uh, have a huge amount of wealth. If they're not allowed to use that wealth to deprive everyone else of that young talent, then we'll see a rebalancing of, of competitions. Uh, at the end of the day, you can only field 11 players at the start of the game. Uh, and that will always allow uh, teams to do a good job of recruitment and technical, tactical, anything on the technical side to counteract money. That's what Villarreal are doing. You know, they did a great job of getting this far. Yes, they lost 2-0 the first leg against Liverpool, but you never know. <clears throat> uh, they've done that on a small budget just through hard work, great technicians and a football culture within, within their club uh, on a limited budget. So, so yeah, it's true. There is a big concentration of wealth in those, in, in those big clubs, but I think it's the job of the regulator to come up with rules to, uh, to limit the ability of that wealth to completely dominate. And we, we see that, I mean, you have those kind of rules with knockout competition rather than league competition. You play home and away, there's going to be a much higher chance of, a, of an upset than if you play, so then if you play a, a league system over 38 matches or whatever it might be, 18 matches. So there are other ways as well. I mean, the, the biggest way to, re, to create more balanced competitions would be to have a limit on the number of foreign players. So if in the Premier League, um, you could say, go back to the old system where you could only have five foreigners, uh, this would uh, rebalance competitions immensely. UK is out of the European Union now, so it doesn't. It could implement that rule if it wanted to. The Premier League is very unlikely to because uh, 
they would perceive that that would lead to a re reduction in the quality. But nevertheless, theoretically, it's possible. And that, that type of rule, although it's illegal within the EU at the moment, <clears throat> that's the type of rule as an example that could redress competitive balance without having to try and regulate the finances of those clubs, which is an impossible or very difficult task. Because um, then, you know, you can be owned by the richest person in the world who wants to spend unlimited money, but you can't make that money work. You can't dominate because you've got certain sporting rules that allow the uh, all the other clubs to compete. So uh, I can't remember what the original question was because that's such a long answer. But uh, yeah, the strength. Well, the strength of the Premier League, in relative terms, monetary wise, at least compared to the rest of the other leagues, but. I take it back to a quote, Jack Dorsey, former CEO of Twitter now. He speaks about develop and developing countries, speaks about innovation. Innovation in a developed country is a desire. Innovation in a developing country is a necessity. And I think a lot of what you speak about there rings home with that statement, so to speak. And it's more of which we discussed off camera, really, isn't it, about the wastefulness of some clubs. But um, I mean probably looking into the next frontier now, but even more crucial to this discussion, Alex, is beginning to understand where this change is going to come from. And I'm going to cast your mind back to an article which you penned for Sports Business in 2021, where you argued that if there is fundamental change, which is going to take place, it has to come from outside UEFA and FIFA, where leaders are trapped by structures and are always having to think through the prism of politics and of national football associations. Now, Alex, if not UEFA, if not FIFA, from where in fact will some of these changes come from? Yeah, that's a good question. I was thinking when, when I said that, I was thinking about the structures of the big federations. In other words, separating the regulatory and also the commercial marketing and the development. Um, and the, that change would have to come from outside, be it from the European Union, be it from the US or any other justice department or national governments acting in specific cases. Um, or it could come as a result of individual uh, court cases. You never know what way they're going to go, uh, what way the outcome is going to go. No one predicted the outcome of Bosman. Um, certainly not with regards to uh, the limits on the number of foreign players. The Bosman case was about players moving at the end of their contract without a transfer fee. Yet there was this incredibly huge uh, side effect, if you like, or side impact of that decision. So we, it's hard to predict exactly where this change will come from. But what, you, what I think we need to do is decide you know, what we want to change to. And that's what I, I was outlining when I was saying that the big federations should be broken up into their different, uh, different arms with separate function, uh, with, their, with their separate boards and administrations. Um, and that's how that's where I think change will come from. And I think there is a coalition of people uh, who care about sport, uh, first and foremost, not their own uh, sort of interests. And it's just a question of building that coalition. Um, there's a lot of, you know, players, coaches, fans, uh, people involved uh, in sport who would like to see things uh, change in a more positive way. I think the big, you know, the big shame is that the Super League 
debacle happened a year ago, uh, and UEFA then emerged from that in a huge position of strength because clubs became very divided. Uh, and so there was obviously a big split amongst the clubs. Uh, and UEFA seemed to be in a very strong position. Yet we are still seeing reforms to the club competitions where the biggest clubs can qualify based on their historical performance and not on their performance in their national championships. And that is a huge missed opportunity. I mean, that's a sign that UEFA is not strong enough uh, or it feels it's it's not strong enough. I think it is, but you know, they obviously feel they're not strong enough or the, the biggest clubs are still exerting such dominance over them that they need to feel that they need to do that. And that is a red line that would never have been tolerated in the past. You know, that would never have made it onto the agenda of a club competitions committee meeting in the past. What clubs qualifying because they did well a few years ago? You know, so you basically... You know, Atalanta or, or whoever did well last year, they can't qualify. But because you won the Champions League a few years ago, you should qualify. Just, I mean, that would, people would have laughed that off. That would have been considered, you know, ridiculous. But apparently that's where we are today. Um, so, so that's, again, another sign that we need reform. Uh, where's it going to come from? It's going to come from a coalition of different people inside and outside of of sport pushing some of them pushing for their own personal interests but nevertheless others pushing for good altruistic reasons because they genuinely care for the sport whatever it is as long as we get to some form of change we won't be the same way in 50 years time that we are today i'm sure of that um, so we try and push that change in a i say we i mean people like you and, and everyone else that cares about the sport first and foremost to try and um, make that change a positive one and not an accidental negative one, uh, which can easily happen through court cases or any other decisions that may have uh, unusual, unexpected outcomes. Seems to me, yourself having shared boardrooms with some of these protagonists and knowing some of them even, that you don't see these latest sustainability changes and reformatting of the Champions League as nothing more than a band-aid over a gaping wound, Alex. Yeah, basically, I mean, you could, I would say it's a rebadging. Again, I haven't seen the details, so I don't know. I mean, I think there's really good people at UA for working in this area. They do brilliant publications. You know, the benchmarking report UEFA does is fantastic. And, uh, but it requires political leadership and will. Um, that's what you had when Platini and Rummenigge were there because they were prepared to push through something that was deeply unpopular with a small number of clubs uh, because they knew it was in the interests of the big majority of clubs and all those other clubs eventually had to accept it. And they opposed it in the beginning, but they came around to accept it. But to do that, you need to build a coalition of uh, sufficiently large numbers of people and opinion formers and influencers within the football community who uh, will go with you and that will believe in you and that think, you know, you have the credibility to deliver that and the vision for the, for the future of the sport. So, yeah, I don't think, I think they're just a rebadging. That's my sense without knowing the details. I think it's just a rebadging of what we've had over previous years. And as I said, in any case, you need uh, effective implementation 
for the rules, which has been lacking. So uh, certainly with regards to the big clubs, uh, you know, you can't have selective rules that apply to some clubs, but not to others, because then the rules lose all their credibility. And it's been an absolutely enlightening and equally fascinating conversation, Alex, and I'm sure one that has plenty more branches yet to grow. But, you know, as we come to a close, have you any advice for anyone who's even insane enough to consider <laughs> entering this perilous industry? Advice? Yeah, I think uh, just from my own personal experience, I think it's good to work outside of football for a while yet you might feel that that would make it harder to get in but it does give you a perspective on let's say on the real world so people that have grown up in a football club or a federation from day one of their professional career maybe are in a bubble and I'm I mean I've certainly been in a bubble since I've been in inside football but if you've worked outside of football in some other industries had a broad experience that will give you a much better perspective because you can then uh, put football in its proper context. It is the most important of all the unimportant things in life. Uh, and I mean, that quote's been attributed to several different people like Arrigo Sacchi and others, but uh, there are more important things than football. Uh, so the first thing I would say is, yeah, keep, like, keep an eye on what's going on in the real world uh, and don't get lost inside the football bubble. But uh, work hard, make contacts, network, uh, listen, be open-minded, be flexible, international. Certainly, if, you, if you're thinking of working in an international context, you have to be very open-minded and adaptable to different cultures and not assume that you're always right or that <clears throat> everyone thinks the same way you do because they don't around the world. Every, <laughs> everywhere is different. Uh, and uh, always stay faithful to the sport. If you love the sport, that will give you a bearing, a grounding that other people don't have. If they're in it for the money, they will disappear. Maybe they get a better offer. They might go and work in film or music or something else because they're interested in maybe they're just interested in creative industries generally if you're interested in, in football you, that will give you an advantage because you will always have a, a base you will always have a reference point that others do not have uh, which is your love for the sport amazing amazing way to close the show alex absolute pleasure having you on Hopefully uh, we don't get any shock surprises and <laughs> have you on talking about the advent of the European Super League or anything close yeah. to us within the coming months. You never know. 